This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Primal Screen, a show all about screen culture, from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. Uh, I'm your host, Flick Ford, and I'm joined in the studio by Lisa Kvartrovich. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Flick. We're going to be talking about the future of filmmaking here in Melbourne. Now, Melbourne's had a, a pretty tough time these past two years. Tomorrow, we're going to reach the milestone of 246 days in lockdown. And in doing so, we're going to overtake Buenos Aires as the city that has spent the most cumulative days under stay-at-home orders. Uh, it's course, this has, of course, had like a huge impact on our local film community. Uh, cinemas have been closed. Festivals have had to pivot to online. And there's been you know, cuts in funding for the arts. And many filmmakers have either had their films put on hold or cancelled entirely but, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. This, if this pandemic has taught us anything, it's that community really matters. And it's all about celebrating the resilience of our local film community and the wonderful ways in which it survived and, you know, even flourished. So later we're going to chat with the co-founder of the Artist Film Workshop, local legend uh, Richard Tui. We'll also talk to the head of VCA Film and Television, Andrew O'Keefe, and get some hot recommendations for what to watch at the VCA Graduate Shorts, which is currently streaming on MIFF Play. But let's get on with the show. And I'm joined by three emerging filmmakers, Oscar Weimar. Hey, Oscar. Hi, Flick. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Holly Bate. Hey, Holly. Hi. <laughs> and Suva Kamal. Hey, Suva. Hi, Flick. It'd be great, actually, just to get a sense of um, your creative work and your filmmaking practices. Holly, let's start with you. So you, you work across sculpture, installation, performance and film as well. Um, yeah. How did you first get started in film? Um, so, yeah, I've been practising art for about seven years now and I've always been fascinated with video work and I've been making videos for a long time and very DIY you know art fun punk no permission wise <laughs> um, but I felt like the concepts that I was exploring in my art practice like queerness sexuality and sex work I felt like there was a bit of a void in how that was being explored in film and tv and I kind of wanted to crack open my practice and explore it and try and fill that void. Um, yeah, so that's why I started doing my master's about last year. And, um, yeah, been leaning into it. It's really fun. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and, Oscar, you're also doing your master's at VCA. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your film practice? Yeah, I'm studying with uh, Holly. Actually, yeah, VCA, we're doing our master's and I'm in the second year now. I got into film from a sociological background or I studied sociology first and I went into it having worked a bit as a research assistant and I felt like it wasn't fulfilling me in the way that I was hoping that work would. And I got into film thinking that I would kind of tell very sort of sociological films you know I suppose and 
I ended up, we got paired with this teacher, Siobhan, who was a revelation uh, to me and to things that I thought that film could do. And that really put me on a slightly different track, I think, in terms of the themes and the sorts of films that I wanted to make. And I made a film in my first year uh, called Each Other, which has played at a few festivals and that's been a fantastic experience uh, for me. It was about a, a human body who emerges from this dead tree and embarks on this journey of self-discovery, which is the kind of lame kind of log line of the film. Just to break in there, it's not lame at all. I've seen this film before. It's it's excellent, Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Flick. Thank you for that. Um, appreciate it. But it can still have a lame log line, right? Basically, the things that I wanted to, to explore in that film was this idea that Siobhan had kind of impressed on us, which is around physicality and the, f- the fact that you, in film, have to, as she would say, point a camera at something. You have to record something. And for me, the starting point was the lockdown, you know, and the restrictions that were in place on our filmmaking uh, at that time. I made the film in July with Holly. Holly was there for the shoot. Uh, thank you again, Holly. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> and we were only allowed one actor and uh, I was thinking about what I wanted to point a camera at and I thought that the human body would be a good place to start. And working as well with the human body in a kind of way that wasn't particularly uh, human-like, I suppose, mm. and manipulating the body and presenting it in ways that perhaps aren't kind of uh, we don't see conventionally. He's, this human body is naked in the film and he mimics these animals as part of his journey of self-discovery. The other thing I wanted to look at was sound and uh, the way that you can use sound to kind of fill these um, spaces around the screen. So in that in the film, he kind of mimics these animals physically, but also uh, through sound, uh, he mimics these cows and these chickens. So those were the kinds of things that, I, I mean, I never imagined that those were the areas that I wanted to kind of explore when I started because I had such a sort of academic approach until then you know I love um, that it's bringing it back to those elements as well of film which you know uh, the the body that we've got the body of film and also the body that we're shooting but also that idea of being able to when especially when you're learning film techniques and you do break um, it down to those different elements like how is sound working in this scene how mm -hmm. is the lighting um, communicating mm -hmm. the story. Um, mm -hmm. Suva, I'm fascinated to know, like, your work as well. You're working across music videos as well as film. So sound and the body would play, I'm sure, a lot into that because you've got usually, what, two minutes, four minutes for a music video. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's sort of funny. I feel like I've had the exact opposite track to Oscar of coming from I feel like I went to film school really fresh and really young um, and kind of coming out of that uh, experience afterwards and feeling like, you know, I'll always be a filmmaker, but um, having a lens to look that look at that through kind of led me to kind of film theory or philosophy um, masters. And 
uh, yeah, I think I found that um, philosophy kind of lended itself to the world of more like experimental um, art film practice, which is what I typically work in now. And, um, And it has sort of allowed me to be kind of use the medium of experimental filmmaking and art to sort of Trojan horse in more of those, I guess, like, philosophical ideas. I love that idea. And we're going to be speaking with Richard from the Artist Film Workshop later tonight. I feel quite similar to you, Super. I think when I started film, I was doing production and theory at the same time, which was really Mm. meaningful way to kind of think more about the practice and to unpack those ideas and using film as a vehicle to do that. I love the idea of this Trojan horse of film to push through some philosophical ideas. And Holly, I just feel like a lot of your work taps into not just the body, like Oscar was saying, but also also the politics of the body and queerness. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, of course. I think for me, I've always really stuck with the personal as political as well. And so being a queer feminist, I often inject my own narrative into my work and hope that that speaks to all of those themes. Um, <laughs> and that's been really interesting carrying that across into film as well. And I mean, yeah, exploring the body in lockdown I feel like it's something that's almost hyper so it's um every it's kind of like a micro world and a pressure cooker and you really feel everything quite intensely and um I know yeah being queer in lockdown as well (laughs) I mean those sense of longing and like wishing for community and missing that absence in your life um and togetherness it's yeah you kind of revert to an angsty teenage version of yourself sometimes and I feel like those feelings are all really heightened. I remember when I was doing uh, script writing and one of the tasks we'd get to do was really to limit the scope of what we could talk about. So we had to talk about, you had to mention this item or you had to set it within, you know, the 1950s or, you know, there'd be these limitations and like lockdown is almost the ultimate creative limit. (laughs) So was there anything for working in lockdown that actually prompted you to take a different creative turn or approach your work in a way that you wouldn't had you not been? in lockdown yeah I think um what I've learned in filmmaking is that there's so much coordination and it's like really a collaborative effort and you really have to coordinate so many people and get starts happening and when you're out there she feels like it can happen in the blink of an eye um but in lockdown I feel like you can really lean into the slowness of making and really kind of sit in that film space and dig a bit deeper into the language of cinema, the micro worlds and the subtleties. Um, And so I feel like I've done a lot of rewrites and a lot of reshoots this lockdown. And that's been an opportunity that I probably wouldn't have had outside of lockdown. And so I'm definitely grateful for that and that way of making. Super, I know you're involved with the Artist Film Workshop. Have you been able to go there and work on your films during lockdown? Was there any times with the restrictions that allowed for that? Yeah, um, I kind of lucked out in the sense that uh, a big part of my time at AFW was actually technically learning about shooting analog film and processing and scanning it. And we got to do a big chunk of the foundational stuff right before we entered into this version of the lockdown. So um, afterwards, we were lucky enough to do like a kind of sort of click and collect service of like grabbing a camera, grabbing some film and kind of being like sent on our merry way. 
And then um, we sort of set up a, like a MacGyvered basement processing studio in my, like my basement at home. So using that to kind of um, make experimental um, film that way. But um, I guess on the, the sort of positives of, or like making films in lockdown, I think the, the biggest sort of blessing has been, I think generally in, my film practice, there is like a, a good or bad, there is a real sense of the audience or the viewer. And with lockdown, you kind of have to break that pattern of what this is for someone looking at it. And you're really kind of allowed that opportunity to actually be experimental or creative for the reasons you, or at least me, first got into film are more kind of um, apparent in that sense. So Oscar, your short film, Each Other, which we mentioned before, and it was one of the highlights for me of the um, MIF shorts this year. Um, it's, 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 it's already screened at the Florida Film Festival and Milwaukee, and it's going to be coming to Brisbane Film Festival as well. Did you have any difficulty like promoting your work in the middle of a lockdown, like how did you get onto the f- festival circuit? It costs a lot of money. It's often to, linked up with funding. I've got friends who have gone yeah. through that and they sometimes won't put through films because they're just like, look, it's going to cost X amount of money. I love submitting my films to film festivals, that I, that I, the films that I really like. That I, and I've made plenty of films that I can't watch. <laughs> I knew I've, I like this film. I'm, I'm really proud of the film and it was a joy to submit it to film festivals and and you know there's plenty that rejected it but the few the few that did accept it you know felt very good it felt great and you know I think for me because I have kind of made a bit of a change and being a bit of a being someone who likes routine and likes to have things planned out it was a big deal for me to take up filmmaking and uh, follow it to, you know, VCA and do all those things. So to see it accepted, to see it at these festivals, you know, to be quite frank was uh, a great feeling and um, validating. So it wasn't hard. (laughs) Holly, I think you touched on this before about that connectedness to the queer community, but that's also true of the film community, like how we can actually get our work out there, how we can connect up with the right people. I remember those first few years of film school was when I actually made a lot of those connections. How's that been for you? Yeah, it's been really strange, Um, especially because film, yeah, it's such a collaborative effort. There's a big community there's so many working parts um and you know uni often provides that network for you and does half of the work in kind of connecting you up with the right people so it's definitely been a lot more self-driven and a lot more online yeah it's like online dating but with film people (laughs) 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 really gotta see if you've got to find your right match but um it's it's been a really nice space of sharing I feel like it's been really easy to share people's work amongst the community and um, spend more time with each other's practices than we would maybe do in the outside world because we'd all be busy doing our own thing. So I think once we get out of this, that'll be really exciting and that we kind of know the community that we're getting ourselves into because we've spent time (laughs) online with each other's works. Um, But yeah, it's definitely been a unique experience. One of the things that often is limiting when you're an emerging filmmaker is connecting up with people, but often it means that people actually who would otherwise 
always be quite busy with films, may have a little extra time <laughs> on their hands. And I wonder about mentoring at this moment. Have you been able to reach out to any people in the industry during this time or have you been able to have access to mentorship that you think would be otherwise unavailable? Do you get mentorship through AFW? Yeah, I guess it's like sort of um, a little bit more informal mentorship at AFW as it sort of functions like a collective Um, and in that sense it's been sort of fantastic everyone's pretty available to you to have those sorts of I don't know those conversations you wouldn't typically have in like a lab full of like 10 people with like in a series of dark rooms but um, that plus uh, this is maybe a bit of a rogue one I've been known to you know if I like someone's work, send them a DM, even if they don't really live in the state. It seems mm. to work. It's it's quite, yeah, and I think people are a little bit more open to it. So, but one of my favourite things about you is I think it took you quite some time to finally tell me that you worked with the Safdie brothers. Oh, and- <laughs> no, amazing. I just feel like if I, if I worked with the Safdie brothers, I'd get like a T-shirt done up. <laughs> And oh, I think because I did it in such an embarrassing, again, DM kind of way that I probably don't advertise that. I think maybe it says something about who I am, so I try to not advertise that. But, yeah, there you go. What were you actually doing in lockdown with the filming? Like how did you work around it? Uh, yeah, so my friend Alex Wu, just a quick shout-out, has made a fantastic film. Um, he did it right before lockdown. It's called Idol. It was his master's graduating film um, at VCA and uh, it was really really inspiring because I think it was so stripped back um, and the whole film takes place. It's just a single shot of um, a, a Korean pop star who's been given some bad news is all I'll really give away. And the whole film takes place just on his face. Um, and I was really inspired by uh, how emotional and affecting and beautiful that film was. And um, I sort of tried to kind of give myself really uh, small parameters for making um, a, a short film that way. So just um, I've roped my poor housemates into a lot of monologues. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, I guess, a workaround. Oh, that's fantastic, Suva. Um, Holly, did you have something to add there? Currently working on a film um, starring my housemate and I, so I am acting in it as well. So that is a workaround that I've had to navigate Um, in making films in lockdown because I wouldn't consider myself to be the best actor. But definitely um, directing us, I'm hoping that that will enrich my practice as a director and directing others um, (laughs) because it's quite a difficult task to do. So, yeah, I'm currently making a film um, about our kind of sibling, like, housemate dynamic and that little micro world um, that we exist in. And I think lockdown is a great space to work on something like that. It's it's funny directing friends as well and knowing all their little um, mannerisms and, you know, working around them or, you know, including them in, having that knowledge of someone before you work with someone. Yeah. So the workaround has been that, getting very involved in the content myself. (laughs) It's like people who aren't natural actors, they bring something, bring something else to the screen. Yeah. yeah, some people are way more performative than others. And my housemate, bless her, <laughs> she's very performative and so that's worked very well. I made a film similarly to Holly last year about a man looking for this crying baby in a house that's being built. And it was right in the middle of lockdown, that one we couldn't use any actors we had to do the entire thing ourselves including shooting recording sound acting and 
I was allowed to use my partner's mum and dad's house because they live next door to us. They were building this house and I wanted to shoot in there because it was an awesome location. I shot this film over sort of six weeks. I spent most nights out there, you know, in the rain. The rain would be dripping through. It didn't have a roof at the start. You know, it was just one room with some, uh, you know, the frames up and then it would the top was built. So it was really the one of the exciting things was that it was a location that changed as I was filming it, which was part of the story because it's got this kind of psychological bent to it. And one night I was out there, the guy who's in the film who I was acting as is dressed in his pyjamas. I had a cardigan over my pyjamas and my Ugg boots on filming myself trying to find this crying baby doll. Uh, and the builder turned up one night in the middle of the <laughs> night. I just, I couldn't believe that he had been he had turned up he, and he said to me that's not what I was expecting to see <laughs> I really didn't know where um you're gonna go with that story but that is such a perfect note to end on and look I'm so excited for what the future holds for all three of you and please keep us posted with all of your future work because we're always happy to champion our, our local filmmakers. If you've just tuned in, I have been speaking with Oscar Weimar, Holly Bates and Suba Kamal. This is Primal Screen. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. You're listening to Primal Screen uh, with Flick Ford and Lisa Kovacevic. We're taking a bit of a pulse check on our local film industry and getting very excited about what the future holds. We spoke with three emerging filmmakers about how they've made films in lockdown and we heard some wonderful workarounds from filming flatmates to getting caught in an empty worksite in your PJs and there's currently a showcase of graduate films being screened on Miff Play and it's all completely free. Yeah, uh, Flick, earlier, uh, a few days ago, I spoke to um, the head of VCA Film and Television, Andrew O'Keefe, because what's happened was, so you mentioned at the top of the show, lots of um, cinemas and film festivals have had to pivot um, to give more online offerings due to all the lockdowns in Melbourne that we've had. And there has been some success stories out of that, though, which is really encouraging, I think, for the film community and uh, and the arts sector as a whole. Last year, the Melbourne International Film Festival um, was shut down, sadly. Mm. So they quickly pivoted online to um, their Myth Play app, which they built specifically, you know, as a safety net, I guess. Um, and to great success, you know, they sold out all their sessions. They still have limited screenings due to distribution rights and stuff. But it also meant that the um, festival could open up Australia-wide. So yeah. it had a much larger audience than it's ever had. Um, and again, sadly, uh, I think it was the night open night they got shut down again this this year um but they had that infrastructure there so that the festival could, could go go ahead and it's devastating for all the live venues of course but um they just made you know the best of you know a bad situation and, and they did it really well to their credit and now that app that they built Miff play has been given a second life for um the VCA, uh, I'm sorry, VCA postgraduate students, um, and they're uh, they've got their own um, showcase of their final year films, the 2020 students' final year films, I should say. Um, so I spoke to Andrew O'Keefe a couple of days ago about the program creating films in lockdown, much as you just spoke about, and the future of film in Australia. 
Andrew O'Keefe, welcome to Primal Screen. Thanks for having me. Andrew, how did the collaboration between the VCA Film Program and MIF Play come about? I wish I could claim uh, the credit. They, a year, nearly a year and a half ago now, when COVID first struck, the previous head of school, who's Sandra Scaberis, she could see what this pandemic was going to do. I mean, never lived one through one like the rest of us. So it was a big call that she decided that she didn't think that for the next two years we were going to be having in, in cinema screening seasons like we usually do as a graduation screening. So she decided that we were going to partnership with the Melbourne International Film Festival for their play.myth.com.au showcase. And she committed to two years of graduation screenings fully online. I could see the wisdom in it, but I also thought, oh, but, you know, live cinema screenings, how can we not have them? And surely things won't be that bad. And, you know, here we are almost a year and a half later, and I think it was such a great call. Like, it was really risky thing to do like students along the way have been going oh but surely we can have some live screenings and so was I but as it got closer and closer we just realized we can't even have a live opening night of any kind no um, and how how have the how have the students coped with that because I know when I was in film school many years ago as you mentioned you'd have in cinema screenings to show family friends industry people somewhere in the CBD it was all very exciting and now, you know, you're having to present them on online platforms. How have, the, how have the students coped with it? As I say, they were nervous coming up to it. And because it's online, it was only about a week out that we started really um, the marketing campaign began. So they hadn't, I think they felt a bit forgotten about. I can tell you they definitely weren't. They've been on our minds for a year and a half now with all this, these students who've made films through COVID and how do we make it the grand launch we want them to have. Um, But in the last week, I think they've really seen that we've done as much as we can as far as marketing and, uh, you know, here I am talking on Triple R, one of Melbourne's treasured radio stations about this screening season, which goes for two weeks. I think now they've embraced and it's, you know, their films are being seen across Australia for two weeks. And on opening, so we launched it on Monday night, at uh, so last Monday night at, um, I think, 7 o'clock. And between 7 o'clock and midnight, roughly 3,500 films were watched in that short window. Wow, that's incredible. Oh. That's really exciting because I, I was wondering if there are going to be any long-term benefits in having screenings of emerging filmmakers happening online where they're reaching probably bigger audiences than they would normally do. Definitely. And the, the play.myth.com.au website is really great and easy to navigate, but one of the features in it is you can click on the filmmaker's name and it takes you to a bio and that's part of Melbourne Uni's website. And there's a biography of each of the directors related to their film. So for us, one of the really big things is to reach an audience, but really to reach industry as well for these filmmakers who are walking out the door into, you know, with new voices and really new. They're at the cutting edge of making films through pandemics. They're experienced. They know how to do it. And they've lived through physical. how do you physically distance two people who are romantically um, communicating it with each other on screen without letting them touch, and they've got to stay 1.5 meters away. And yeah, they're they're real challenges. You know, I was reading an industry report about uh, virtual production or VPs, what the industry is calling it, which is like a filmmaking technique that uses real time game engines to capture final visual effects in camera as opposed to in post. 
uh, for example, using digital backgrounds that can respond to camera movement. And I was really impressed by the quality of these films. Some of them are just phenomenal, particularly in, in the animation field. Um, are, are these tools that, the, that these young filmmakers are, are already incorporating? <laughs> it's so ironic you bring this up. Today I've been dealing with a room booking situation about our animators working in the um, in our motion capture suite. So it's very much part of the animator's um, vocabulary. It's not, I mean, our animation degree is hugely successful. You know, we've got an Oscar winner that comes out of our animation degree. But historically, we've been really 2D or um, stop motion animation. And, you know, now more and more and more, your virtual production is becoming part of it. You know, the next step is the saturation of those volumes, the dream screens, the 180 degree wraparound um, virtual environments. And they're big and expensive at the moment, but they won't be for long. And, you know, hopefully we'll have uh, at least something at the VCA or we'll have a very direct industry partner, which we're working on right now, because we too, sounds like you do as well, it's really where the industry is going. I mean, I don't think in real life production will ever stop because you've it's 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 a different thing. It's not the it's not um, they complement each other. They're not uh, mutually exclusive. Yeah, I agree. Um, most of these films presumably were shot during lockdown in 2020. Is that right? I wish we could say that. Yes, but um, some of them were shot in 2020, and a lot of them were shot this year in the first half. For a student who was doing a three year degree, it turned out to be closer to a four year, four -year degree. degree. Yeah. So because it's this is the 2020 students um, program. Did it force them to sort of think outside the box in terms of modes of storytelling? I just watched one called The Formation of a Cloud, which was shot on Super 8, which was great. It really speaks to, you know, themes of memory formation. Um, it doesn't feature any characters and instead it's told in voiceover and really beautiful art artistry. Was this a consequence of producing films in lockdown? I'm presuming so. Uh, yes and no. Some, some people embraced it and others were dogmatic about their approach to I'm going to make this film you just tell me the restrictions that you as the university that you know which is we have to put on you to keep everybody safe and we did that and they're okay okay this is how the story is going to be told but it's still the same story I mean what one thing I really like to make clear about the VCA as compared to some other film schools is storytelling is our um, bread and butter. It's not necessarily cinematography. It's not necessarily animation. It's the skill of telling the story and, say, being able to sit there in front of people and tell a story and entertain them verbally is one of the skills we like students to have. Not very easy. You know, everyone thinks they can do it. It's not that easy. And when you are a good innate storyteller and are a, a skillful storyteller, you know the essence of the story and therefore you can handle, you know, forced impingements on that story that may come your way because you know what the heart of the story is. And that's what I would say about most of our filmmakers is they know the heart of the story. Yes, restrictions come in. Maybe, yes, those two people on screen probably would kiss in this moment, but they can't kiss but what can they do? The restrictions don't really matter if you know the heart of the story. And what sort of uh, stories can uh, listeners expect from the program? Are, are any popular themes cropping up um, with this generation of filmmakers? Diversity, without a doubt. Uh, that's, that's easily the biggest one, I would say. The students are beyond the idea of, hey, we've got to have to make sure we're embracing diverse themes and imagery and it's just part of their world now in a way that, you know, it hasn't been naturally part of the rest of society for that long. Now these students are just 
it just is. Uh, and that's terrific to see. I, it's easier, Lisa, for me to say what, they, what, what audiences won't see, and that is people wearing masks, people being downbeat and trodden on by this pandemic we've had. It's just, it's just not on display in these films. There is pretty much everything you can think of from big sci-fi philosophical dramas to small sister... I mean, I'm thinking of my favourite ones that I've seen so far, small sisterly relationships. I would say it sounds strange, but there really is a sense of hope through these films. Sometimes that's because... They're graduation level films, and therefore they're on the tip. The students are on the tip of emerging out into the world, and they're very hopeful about that. That's interesting. But maybe ninety nine percent of films are not um, depressing or anything like that, and so they're a really good escape from some of our lived lives at the moment. Yeah, I think optimism is what audiences are really wanting at the moment. <laughs> If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with the head of VCA Film and Television, Andrew O'Keefe, about their graduate film season, which has been released as a mini film festival online, thanks to the Melbourne International Film Festival's platform, MIF Play, which is just another great example of arts organisations joining forces in these challenging times. Andrew, this festival features the final year films of your 2020 graduates, but you mentioned this collaboration with MIF is a two-year commitment. Yeah, that's right. So these are the 2020 students that just obviously delayed their graduation. The 2021 students are shooting right now. This is the second half of the year is their traditional shooting time and they're obviously delayed again. So here we are still only getting going in it. But they will um, go to screen around the end of February, maybe early March 2022. And hopefully the partnership keeps going from beyond that. But I, I must admit, I hope it does have live screening capacity in it in some way as well because they're not the same thing. The collaborative emotion that an audience brings in when they're all together in the same room watching a big screen, you can't replace that fully. Well, that's right. The on-again, off-again lockdowns have really negatively impacted the whole cinema industry. However, there has been some positives to come out of it. This collaboration that you've made with MIF uh, on their MIF Play app um, has seen these students' films reach an audience of 3,500 on their opening night, which I presume would not have been the case had it been in cinema. Are there any positives to be gained from moving festivals like this to the online space? I think streaming is total game changer and it sounds like yeah that happened 10 years ago but it's still happening and it is still um let's say democratizing the industry really it you know it used to be you had to have high-end equipment and high-end contacts etc but now you know we all think of netflix and whatever else you think of but there are so many streaming platforms now there is just literally hundreds that are accessible in australia and that is Without a VPN, if you had a VPN, there's way more than that. And they're both niche and broad and uh, commercialised and not-for-profit and everything is there. So the ability, I think, to reach audiences has definitely grown. I can't say the flow of income has changed much. That's probably still, you know, uh, there's a large people who benefit a lot. Having said that, what I would say is, especially, again, for our graduates, I haven't been to Triple R's website recently, but I'm guessing on Triple R's website, for example, there will be video and vision and stories told in the visual format on the website, and this is for radio stations. 
every single entity out there these days that is industry or audience facing, be it a clothing label or whatever, they all need visual stories told. And if you have the skill to tell a story in 10 seconds or 10 minutes or you know an hour or whatever, there will always be an audience for you and always work for you. These students coming out now are at the forefront of everybody requiring their skills. We've spoken about platforms, but what about the modes of production? Have you seen positive change in terms of accessibility to production tools and equipment? Absolutely. Look, the I think the both on-screen and off-screen, the size of the stories has changed. So off-screen, for example, with, it used to be you would require a film, minimum a film crew of 30 as a, a really low-budget independent film to just to be able to put a film together. Now you don't need anywhere near that number because cameras can record in pretty much any lighting situation. You can point a camera out now from almost pitch black to the brightest bright days. That used to take really specific lighting techniques and camera crews, etc. and you don't need them anymore um, because technology has you know, opened up and made it easier and lighter and cheaper and simpler. And I also think that audiences are broadening, but also the niche, the niche audiences can be broader and therefore you can tell smaller stories and they can find a bigger audience, whereas, you know, the blockbusters and the marvels and all that are still out there. But the independent films may not be in the big tentpole cinemas anymore but doesn't mean they're not being seen. They're possibly being seen by more people these days. Festival circuits have got busier and more media coverage from used to be the top five, but now it's kind of the top 30 film festivals get coverage. The market seems insatiable for all sizes of stories. So I think the future is bright. I really do. That's really positive to hear. Um, Now, the film festival is free. How can listeners access it? Is there an app or is it just through the website? No, you don't, even, don't need to download anything. The only thing you do need is an email address, so you have to register at play.mif.com.au um, and register as a, a viewer. Um, if you're already a MIF member, then you've already got a, an account. Uh, and then once you've done that, you go and watch whatever you want for free and um, 42 films to go through, and that includes from 60 graduates, from producers to directors to production designers, And they're the best short filmmakers in Australia right now. Well, Andrew, thanks for joining us on Primal Screen. Oh, thank you. It's been great. That was Andrew O'Keefe, head of VCA Film and Television. We've been talking about the VCA Short Film Program, which is available for you to watch for free until October 10. Just head to play.mif.com.au and you can stream over 40 short films from Australia's next wave of filmmakers. You're listening to Triple R. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with me, Flick Ford and Lisa Kovacevic. On tonight's show, we're we're celebrating the resilience and the innovation of our local film community. And look, who better to speak to that than the wonderful Richard Tui? Richard and his partner, Diana Barry, are both experimental filmmakers. Together they founded the Artist Film Workshop in 2011 and it's just moved to Brunswick East. And AFW, if you're, if you're not aware of it, is an open membership-based DIY community with workshops and resources so you can learn to process your own film and you can connect up with other artists. 
Hi, Richard. Hi, Felicity. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So the Artist Film Workshop, um, AFW, is an artist collective. It's a not-for-profit organisation. You provide access to knowledge and resources for filmmakers and artists in Melbourne. Can you tell our listeners, how did you actually set up AFW? Well, it, there's two phases to that. Um, the first phase was just trying to uh, marshal enough people to be interested in um, the outlay that we needed to make, which was getting a space to rent. And real estate is always a problem for community groups like ours. But so it took, it took a couple of years actually to get to that point. But how we finally started um, with a space was post a, a workshop we ran at MIF. Um, we had, I don't know, 15 or so participants. And to me, that seemed like a critical mass. And I managed to seduce all of those people into joining and paying a, the membership so we could uh, get a space. How does the membership work, just quickly? Yeah, sure. Well, you pay for six months. Um, currently, it's $230 for six months. With that, you get you can use the lab anytime you like. Like, you just you don't have to book in. Uh, there's no extra costs or anything. Um, the chemistry is provided. Uh, most of the chemistry is provided. And we have, um, you know, cameras and printers and all sorts of other gear for production and post-production of, of uh, working working with 16 mil that uh, you might need, um, you know, not everything. It's not a full-service lab, but um, it, indeed it's a self-service lab. That's a better way to describe it. You had this almost like a trial with with MIF, is that right? Oh, more or less a trial, yeah. I mean, look, we'd been running workshops prior to that, but with MIF we had a critical mass of people who had shown a commitment to do something over an extended period of time. I think we had like a month worth of uh, get-togethers. And, um, yeah, that, that's what took us over the edge. What kind of prompted you to even think about mm. setting up this community? Like you just couldn't find that in Melbourne at the time? Oh, absolutely not. In fact, um, you know, the genesis of it was a little bit protracted and in part it, it connects with the genesis of our own business, which is NanoLab here in Dalesford. Um, we were you know, prolific users of Super 8 and then Kodak stopped making uh, Super 8 Kodachrome, uh, which was a much-loved film stock. Um, and they replaced it with a new ectochrome film. No one would process that film. We tried high and low, so we started to do it ourselves. Um, and then our business started, NanoLab started. And then from that, um, I really got in, interested in the idea of sharing that knowledge and getting more people, you know, doing their own processing, their own lab work. Around about that time, which would have been around 2010 or so, um, we had a connection with some people who were travelling from Europe and um, they introduced us to the artist-run film lab scene internationally. Prior to that, we didn't know about it. So we were working in a, a traditional Melbourne vacuum. Um, but uh, when we met these folks, they brought us into that community and um, that really opened our eyes to the, po the possibilities that something like an AFW could have in Melbourne as a resource for people to learn about and do their own film work. I mean, principally, it's about doing your own lab stuff. The question is why that's interesting, why that's important. I think that idea of having ownership and to understand all the different processes that are involved really does change your connection to film. And, you know, celluloid is often referred to in relation to its like materiality of, of, of celluloid, right? And 
there's a romance to that as well, but there's also um, a very scientific aspect to it and a knowledge behind that. Mm. And I don't think it's it's not something that I was taught in film school. Um, do you see yourself as as operating outside of of university systems like film schools? Yeah, sure we are. At least um, in the Australian context, there are some film schools that we've been to around the world that um, do you know teach hand processing and these sorts of things. Um, rarely to the extent that the people in the Artist Run Film Lab movement do it. But um, but anyway, suffice it to say, no, there's nothing like that happening here. And what's interesting about it, I think, is that, um, you know, cinema is its apparatus. Cinema is the things that make the particular effects that we see on the screen happen. That's what I think. Now, um, we've always had access to cameras and projectors, but the other side of the apparatus is the chemistry that you use to develop the film and printing and what can be done in that zone. And I think that's equally uh, as valid an area of exploration for people. Um, To understand what cinema is, is to understand all of those components, I think. So, yeah, that's what we're about. We're about taking people into that side of it. And it's partly about empowerment. And it's partly just about um, also, given the day and age where there's been a a, a fast retreat of commercial services, it's about making it possible at all. So there's two sides to that. When we're in a time of financial insecurity and instability, and I think that, you know, we're in the depths of lockdown at the moment here in Melbourne, and that, of course, has had a huge impact on arts and the film film community here more precisely with cuts to funding and um, being harder for emerging filmmakers. Often in those times, there's a tendency to go towards more commercial films that are cheaper and and don't have much experimentation sometimes because it's a safe option. And we see that time and time again. At least a perceived safeness. Yes. So I actually think one of the things that AFW really offers is this platform for experimental film and not necessarily in terms of just cinema, but also art as well. You're kind of balancing between both those worlds there. Yeah, that's right. Um, in part uh, because when you work on your own films, like when you work on the film material itself, um, which is an extremely tactile and, you know, time-consuming process, um, you are focused on other things than traditional cinema has been focused on. So you are focused on things other than, for instance, the topic you might have filmed, you know, the narrative or the, you know, whatever subject matter you might have engaged with. You're also almost inevitably be going to, going to be um, engaged with the kinds of things that emerge on the film itself while you're handling it and whether or not you like those extra features. Um, so what does that mean? Well, that means that um, it has a broader, the, the artist-run film labs have a broader kind of association with film than commercial because, and, and specifically that leads us into the direction of, you know, artist film. I mean, usually the expression is artist film and video, but I wanted to chop off video. So um, that's why it's artist film workshop, but it would be more, um, traditional to call it artist film and video workshop. I was just reflecting on how much I would have loved this when I was in film school. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people would love it when they were in film school and, and sort of mm. feel a little bit disillusioned. Uh, you know, not everybody who goes to film school will feel it, but it's not uncommon for AFW to be uh, frequented by people who've graduated and said that uh, we didn't cover any of this stuff and I'd like to know about it. Can we dig a bit more into how this actually works in a financial way? Because so you've set up a membership, which you mentioned before, where there's a you know yearly fee in order to be part of this community. Do you are you able to get any other funding or anything like that? Is there any other support coming in for you? No, nothing. 
thing is um, we, we get the odd, um, well, during COVID, there was a couple of community grants that were like council-based grants. But um, if you speak to Film Australia and you mention the word film, they'll say, well, you need to go somewhere else. And if you f- speak to um, the Australia Council and mention the word film, they'll say you need to go somewhere else too. So really film doesn't have a funding body uh, these days working on film. And people, the funding bodies are kind of, uh, you know, almost anti it. Um, so we have to work in that comp- in a complete vacuum in that regard um, and be self-funded. Now, not entirely a bad thing. I've been involved with groups before where there is funding, uh, where you do get support funding, and it does create a lot of conflict inside the organisation. And then when the funding is cut, the organisation disappears. So I've liked the idea from the outset of us being a lean operation that um, can support itself just from within itself. I think that's a feature. I'd like it if there were, was funding available for these kind of community um, organisations. There used to be, mm. and um, there is in other countries, but that's just that's just where we live and when we live. Is it, is it impacted by the cost of celluloid? It is. It is. Um, and really the, the spirit of the lab is to try and say, okay, um, film can be a bit expensive, but if you do all of these things, you can still work in it. If you use these particular film stocks, which are really interesting, but not the general ones, not the ones people normally use, and if you process it yourself and if you print it yourself, then you get to experience all this stuff um, without the cost being as high as it would have been if you used you know, commercial facilities. In some respects, it's quite, it's quite um, enabling of, for people to use film in a way that perhaps wasn't in the past. It's just that you need to be prepared to work in film in a different way than you used to. In the past, you'd use commercial services. These services are no longer here, apart from just developing. All of the post-production services for film are gone. But that's okay because we've managed to salvage quite a bit of gear and quite a bit of knowledge and put them in one spot to make it possible for people to, to learn about and do these things themselves. One thing that happened when the film labs, the commercial film labs closed, and they closed really quickly, was that a lot of gear uh, was kind of, I like to say, liberated from the hands of these corporations. <laughs> and uh, if we were lucky enough to intervene on the way between the back door of the lab and the metal recycling plant, it was possible to salvage some of this stuff and get it working again. That's wonderful. That gives it a real, like, punk aesthetic. I love it. It very much has that. I mean, things. Um, these machines were made for corporate uses um, and, you know, had a whole, you know, industrial network supporting them. We now, in the Artist Run Film Lab movement, have to maintain these things ourselves. And what's more, we have to teach ourselves about them. Fortunately, the internet is great in sharing, helping us share that information with each other around the world to keep bits of equipment running. So, yeah, usually if you go to an artist-run film lab, you'll see a lovely old piece of equipment and an Arduino or something like that, a whole lot of wires that someone has attached to it in order to make it do something that, um, you know, stopped working a while ago or, or, or what have you, you know, to, just to keep the thing going, which I kind of like. You know, it's a, as you say, it's a kind of steampunk approach. Absolutely. Also, I can't help but think that the kind of films that when you change the materiality and when you change the context of the technology you're using, you're going to create a different film entirely and a completely and different artwork. I'm entirely in favour of that change that happens to people when they uh, experience this process. To me, the difference is like, 
discovering something as opposed to discovering something out in the real world, some, coming across something through your own work, as opposed to sitting in your room and just imagining, right? Sitting in your room and imagining things is great, but it's probably, you're probably going to find something more genuinely interesting if you, if you bump up against it in the real world. And that's what happens with this process-oriented approach to art making, not, not just in film, but in, in art, where you say, well, you know, I'm starting with an idea of using these materials and I play with them for a bit and then I discover, oh, when I play with them in this way, something exciting happens. And so you chase that exciting thing and you find, oh, I can bend that a little bit more and go in a different direction. Always it's a process of discovery and refining the discovery as opposed to a process of prediction, like saying, I think this will do, this will work, and then we go on set and then we try and get that thing that I thought of in advance. So, yeah, I'm very much in favour of um, opening people up to removing their preconceived notions about what film is and finding out for themselves anew what it can be. Yeah, this kind of working with materials is discovery-oriented in that way. So if any of our listeners would like to get involved with the Artist Film Workshop, where should they go? Well, it's an entirely open group, meaning we'll accept anybody who's got the $230. We're mostly interested in experimental film, but you can go in whatever direction you want because we pride ourselves on being open. However, be warned, we will probably try and seduce you in the experimental direction, and so will the materials themselves. Mm. But that said, where you would go is to our website, artistfilmworkshop.org, uh, and then you'll send an email to the group and we will then try and um, seduce you further. <laughs> well, if you want to be seduced by Richard and the team at Artist Film Workshop, please do check out artistfilmworkshop.org. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me, Richard. It was lovely chatting with you. Pleasure. Triple R. You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Lisa Kovacevic and myself, Flick Ford. We explored the future of filmmaking here in Melbourne. We spoke with three emerging filmmakers, Super Kamal, Holly Bates and Oscar Weimar. Uh, we also checked in with Andrew O'Keefe about the VCA Graduate Shorts Program, which is currently streaming on MIF Play. And we finished up the hour with Richard Tui from the Artist Film Workshop. Um, big thank you to our guests. Um, if you want to check out more information about AFW, check out uh, artistfilmworkshop.org. And for the VCA graduate season, head to miff.com.au and that's going to be running till 10th of October. I'm going to make sure that I, I check that out. Yeah, there's a few good ones on there. Flick. You should. Yeah. What have you been watching lately, Lisa? Uh, aside from Rick Stein's Food Odyssey. <laughs> Which is like on 24-7 in the background. My family are just like, Lisa, just put something else on. I don't know why. I find it really comforting. It's on the SBS <laughs> you, Food you Channel. You do you, Lisa. I do <laughs> me. That's right. Um, it's, he's just got me through lockdown somehow. I don't know because it's the travel program. So yeah. he just takes you somewhere else that isn't here. It isn't my lounge room. So I've been really enjoying that and I love cooking. Um, I've also been like madly into Squid Game, which is oh, yeah. um, yeah. South Korean thing that's just come out on Netflix, which is kind of like Hunger Games meets Boon Joon Ho, who did um, The Host and Parasite. Okay. Yeah, mm. it's very cool. Um, and I'm really excited to watch the next season of Alone, which has recently yes. come out, season seven. Yes. So if you, you know, when Survivor first came out, I was like, this is going to be great. I mean, the Survivor that we all know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, this is going to be great, surviving in the jungle. And it's not that at all. It's just like backstabbing and bitching. 
this is actually the real survivor. So like it's 10, I think 10 contestants out in the wilderness. There's one in Patagonia. There's one in the Arctic, which is intense. And they all just get to take like 10 items with them and they have to survive. And it's bloody hilarious and terrifying and amazing. They're really skilled people. They'll build these incredible huts and stuff. And, oh, my God. Um, yeah, they're just living <laughs> off off the land. And, and then they go kind of mad. Like one guy catches so much fish, but he just, just won't eat it. He just keeps smoking it. <laughs> And not eating it. Um, anyway, oh it's gosh. great. It's great. All righty. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check on, it out. Yeah, that's on SBS. Anyway. All right. Yeah. Check it out. Um, a big thank you to Morty Osborne for who edits our podcast and to Carl Chapman for panelling and producing assistance. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 